Hey, we're in 1 Corinthians 13 tonight. Uh, you guys, you Bible students know this one. The love chapter, yes. Part of it at least read, written or read at every wedding you've ever been to, probably. But I think in the context of 1 Corinthians, it's, uh, and especially where we are in 1 Corinthians, it's, it's very interesting that Paul would choose to set this in right here, right where he did. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about that. But first, let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the day, and we thank you, God, for the opportunity to gather in your name, to study your word. Our hope is to know you more and to love more like you loved, Lord. This is a, a chapter all about love, Lord, and and that is the end goal of our relationship with you, our um, of Christendom, Lord, is to not to know the most, but to love the most. So help us to do that, Father. It's by the power of your Spirit residing in our hearts that we can. Teach us your ways, God. Even in a chapter where probably most of us are familiar with, Lord, help us to hear, God, what you would have us hear tonight. Help us to see what we need to change in our hearts and in our lives, that we might be more holy and we might honor you all the more. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Yeah, we've been talking about where we started really kind of a new section in 1 Corinthians last week uh, when we studied chapter 12, where Paul turns his attention to the the spiritual gifts, the or the gifts of the Spirit. And really chapters 12, 13, and 14 kind of cover this topic of the gifts of the Spirit. Why did Paul need to con or discuss those with the Corinthian church? Well, they had kind of, I don't know that they misunderstood from the onset, but certainly they had taken them, the, the gifts of the Spirit and, and not used them properly. Paul would say that the gifts of the Spirit were not for our own benefit or not for our own edification, but rather to build up the body. He spends the second half of chapter 12 talking about how we are saved individually, but we're saved into a body ministry. We're saved into a church. We're saved into the body of Christ. And all of us play different roles. None of us have the right to say that one person's role is less valuable than another person's role. How can the eye say to the hand, we have no need of you? How can the ear say to the foot, we have no need of you? We All positions in Christ, in the body of Christ, are valuable. And the idea behind Paul's correction, as he teaches again on the spiritual gifts, is to say, you guys have, have become me-centric in in your use of these gifts. It's all about what gift do I have? Is my gift better than your gift? Is and and do I do it better? Is it is it and it had become me-centered? And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. Your gifts are intended for the purpose of benefiting others. And God gives those gifts in order to be a benefit to the body of Christ. At the end of the chapter, he says, desire those gifts. Desire the best gifts, he even would say. What are the best gifts? That depends on what your need is. I mean, if I'm sick, then the best gift to me is somebody that's got the gift of healing, right? If if I'm wondering what to do, then I'm looking for somebody with a word of wisdom as to how to speak and, and give me direction in my life. And so what the best gifts are kind of depends on what the situation is. But he does say, seek the best gifts. 
And then at the very end of the chapter, he says, but, and really it's kind of the intro to chapter 13, I'll show you a more excellent way. Uh, there, there's a, even a, a greater thing than all these gifts that I've listed, as Paul, as Paul is saying. And I don't want us to think, and we shouldn't think, that Paul is saying, giving us an option here to say, either you choose the gifts of chapter 12, or you choose what is in chapter 13, love. It's not an either-or type thing, but rather an and type thing, where we have the gifts in the, of the Spirit, and we have love. And that's how the gifts are then properly used, is through the, the channel of love. Looking at verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You with me? We ready? He says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Does that sound good? Uh, sounding brass or clanging cymbals. Is that, is that pleasing to the ear? No. I stand right behind or right in front of the drum set. There are times when our drummers do the whole clanging cymbal thing <laughs> over and over, and it's, it starts to jar you a little bit. There used to be a commercial. I was trying to remember what it was for. I think it's for like cold medicine or something. This was years and years ago. And there was this little petite little marching band girl playing the clarinet. And as she's playing, she's got a head cold and they're talking about her head cold. And behind her, the whole time of the, of the commercial is the cymbal guy. And, you know, and you see her head throbbing and, and, you know, take NyQuil and you all feel better. I'm not sure what the, the product was, but that's the idea. It's that are you kidding? Are you going to do that again? Yes, you're going to play that clanging cymbal one more time. Okay, that's not a good thing or a sounding brass. It's harsh. It's annoying. And that's not the way that we're to act, speaking with tongues of men or angels, but having not love. Paul likes his little lists. I don't know if you studied Paul enough to catch that, but almost all of his epistles contain some sort of list at some point. Do this, don't do that. Come close to this, stay away from that. This is what the fruit is. This is what, you know, and he gives us shopping lists. And then over in Galatians chapter 5, he gives us a list. And many kind of think of it as a list, but it's, it's really not. It's more of an, a, a definition. He would say that the fruit of the Spirit is love. And you guys know the rest, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, meekness, and gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, whatever the order is. So we understand what Paul is saying in that list, or if we look at it that way, is not that the fruit of the Spirit are all those things. Rather, the fruit of the Spirit is love. It doesn't say the fruits of the Spirit are. It says the fruit of the Spirit is. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Love is acted out as joy, peace, patience, kindness, so on and so on. And that's how love is acted out. And so the list of that in Galatians 5 is more defining what love is. The fruit of the Spirit is what we need to pursue. It's what we need to chase after. It's that evidence that's, that the Spirit is in our lives. 
The evidence that we, that the Spirit is in our lives is love. Okay. Let me say that again. The evidence of the Spirit in our lives is love. The fruit of the Spirit is love, not spiritual gifts. Having spiritual gifts isn't the evidence of the Spirit in our lives. Love is. So we should pursue love. If the gifts are used outside of love, they're not profitable for the body. That's Paul's point as he drops this in the middle of chapters 12 and 14. And in fact, if you think about it, if the gifts are used without love, they're actually dangerous. They're they would be harmful or potentially harmful. And so we need to make sure that we act or that we live according to the fruit of the Spirit, which is love. We don't want to be brash or symbolish. Yes, I made that up. He speaks of the tongues of men and of angels. And we're going to talk more about tongues next week. It is always an interesting topic. People denominations fall on different sides of that. But here he says the tongues of men and of angels. What is he speaking of? Well, the the gift of tongues can be manifest in two different ways. One would be what we see at Pentecost in the book of Acts. When the Holy Spirit comes and the group of people that the Holy Spirit falls on suddenly starts speaking in other men's languages. You recall that from the beginning of book of Acts. They say, aren't these men all Galileans, but yet we understand them in our own tongue. These men weren't trained in the tongues of other languages. The Holy Spirit enabled them to speak the languages of other men. So that's one of the ways the gift of tongues is manifest, is that you would suddenly speak another language. Chuck Smith, the guy that started Calvary Chapel, gives an example of a woman who... um, back in, in in the early days of Calvary, stood up in a believer's meeting and, uh, I'm trying to remember all the details of it, had never spoken any French and suddenly began to speak fluently in French. And there happened to be a woman there who was from France, understood what she said. Not only did she say this that what this woman was speaking was French, but it was a very specific dialect, very aristocratic dialect of French, not something that the common French would even use. But she was able to interpret what she said. And so this woman who had never spoken French before suddenly was, by the power of the Spirit, able to minister to this other lady. And so uh, that's one of the ways it can be manifest. The tongues can be manifest. Another would say would be in an angelic language. That's a language that no man would understand. Uh, one spoken, and, and, and we'll get into that more next week, but between you and God. Either way, whichever it is, without love, it is harsh and it is of no benefit. He says in verse 2, And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. So he's going back through his list of chapter 12 and giving of the gifts of the Spirit and saying, if we have all these things but have not love, we are nothing. Imagine those gifts being wielded without love. Imagine prophecy, knowing, or or knowledge, or moving mountains without love. You could pick up the mountain that's in your path and set it right in somebody else's path. I mean, that's, it, it would, 
not be to the benefit of the body. And it says in verse 13, all, and though I, or, or verse 3 rather, uh, and, though all, and though I bestow all my good to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. So even sacrifice, right? Bestowing all my goods to feed the poor, having my body to be burned. Sacrifice of myself is of no benefit if it is done without the fruit of the Spirit. Giving to the poor or, or, or sacrificing ourselves to be burned, it would say, uh, uh, giving ourselves sacrificially is, is of no benefit if it's not done with the fruit of the Spirit, which of course is love. In the King James, I don't know if you guys, some of you still read that. Um, each time we say love in this chapter, the King James would translate it as charity. And still the same root word, Greek root word. The, the reason the King James translated it into charity is because the King James was translated from the Latin Vulgate. The word that was used in the Latin Vulgate was charitas, which we get charity from. And so that's why it's translated that way. And really, charity, it's kind of gotten a, a, a disservice in this day and age in that when we think of charity, we think of the you know United Way calling us and saying, how much would you like to make a charitable contribution? And it's not really done in love. It's more like, all right, I'm tired of you calling me every night at dinner for three weeks straight. Yes, I'll give you $5 to get you off my back. That's not charity. That's you know taking care of yourself. So charity in this day and age kind of has a bad name, but in that day and age, it would mean to give sacrificially in Love And so appropriate either way, love or charity as defined previously. So, you with me? What is love? It's a many splendored thing. It's, no. Everybody talks about it. What is it? Well, we define it and have for a long time in this church. I love the, the, the definition that Pastor Dave picked up. I'm not even sure where he had picked it up from. But it, simply put, love is being others-centered. It's caring more about somebody else than you care about yourself. Now, what's interesting is we have, we use the same word, love, to mean many different things, don't we? I, I can say in, in almost the same sentence, I love to go out for ice cream with my lovely wife. I love my wife. I love my ice cream. But do I love my ice cream the same way that I love my wife? No. It's kind of different. She hopes so. Yes. <laughs> I love the San Diego Chargers. Do I love them the way I love my wife? No, certainly not. So there are different... We use the same word love for to mean different things. In the original language, in the Greek, they actually had different words to mean different things. They had the word eros, from which we get the word erotic, meaning physical love. Of course, the, the sexual connotations of that are, are appropriate and accurate, but it would also mean a, a physical love like, I love ice cream. That's eros. That's a, a love of the physical, okay? And so 
there's there was Eros, there was, and I don't know exactly how to pronounce this one, S-T-O-R-G-E, Storg, Storge, don't know, but that was that was an affection type of love. That would be the love that I would have for my kids, um, an affection for them. There's phileo, which we get the word Philadelphia from, which means a brotherly love, the love that I have for my church, my my family, you know, the, this church family and what have you. And so the, the love that brings us together as brothers and sisters in Christ. But what's interesting, as they were writing the New Testament, they felt as though that none of these words were quite appropriate for the love that is spoken of in the New Testament. This Love that comes from God. And so they actually coined a new word in order to try to explain what this love that they were experiencing was. That word, of course, is agape. And it is in the New Testament. It is specifically, it was specifically coined for the New Testament. And it's often defined as the, that agape love is the love that God has. And that's true. It is the love of God, but it's really not enough of an explanation. You see, agape, in the way that I think we should define it, is a self-denying love. It is a self-sacrificial love. And really, if we wanted to find the full definition of the word agape, what we would do is turn to 1 Corinthians 13. Because for the next few verses, that is what Paul is doing. He is setting the standard. He's writing what this word agape means. He's writing out the definition of what agape is. Each of the times the word love or charity is mentioned in this chapter, it is the word agape. Okay. And so now he's going to kind of set the boundaries of what this new word is agape. Verse four would say, love suffers long and is kind. So he starts with two things that love does. First, it suffers long. It's long-suffering. It goes the extra mile. Um, Jesus would speak about that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 41, when he says, when somebody compels you to carry their pack and go with you one mile, go with them an extra mile. And, and that, in that day and age, that was the, the custom of the day. If you had a, a Roman guard or a Roman um, uh, soldier carrying his pack, he could employ anyone to carry his pack for him. He would just simply tap you on the shoulder and say, here, you get to carry this. And it was your duty as somebody under the Roman law to carry that soldier's pack for one mile. And then you would hand it back to him and then he could find somebody else and go on. Jesus is saying, you do that, do well to do that, but then say at the end of your mile, say, no, 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 no. let me go one more. Let me go with you one more to go the extra mile. And so that's Matthew chapter five. It suffers long. Second Peter verse three or chapter three, verse nine. Um, God displays that he is long suffering by saying this, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness but is long suffering toward us not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance and so god has been long suffering with you and i i know how long the lord pursued me before i actually gave my heart to him 
He was very patient. He was very long-suffering and waiting for me. That And, and he waits for all that they should come to repentance. He is long-suffering. Love is long-suffering. It is also kind, it says in verse 4, to show kindness at all times. Not just when kindness is convenient, not just when kindness would be of for, for your benefit, that you would reap something from you being kind. That's not true kindness, showing kindness at all times. A good measure of kindness in your life is how do children receive you? Because if you're not kind, a child doesn't want anything to do with you. And they're quick to tell you that just by the way they act. If you want to measure your kindness, go interact with a child for a while. And you'll quickly know how well you're doing. I had that opportunity yesterday. I was uh, repairing a um, garage door. And um, this happens every now and again. You get the four or five or six-year-old boy that is fascinated with, you know, the drill or fascinated with the tools or the tool belt. And so the mom will come out and say, hey, he really likes watching people take things apart and put things together. Can he sit out here and watch you? Absolutely. I do that. I love having that. And so the first thing I did was, hey, what's your name? Uh, Crosby. Hey, Crosby, how you doing? How old are you? Oh, I'm five. Oh, okay. Are you in, in kindergarten? No, not yet. I'm, I'm in preschool. Are you getting ready to go to preschool? And he had his you know, lunch with him and everything. He's waiting for the school bus. And and, uh, and he stood out there for 20 minutes in, you know, you remember how cold it was yesterday or today. And it was just like, he stood out there just fascinated. And, and I was like, yeah, this is, this is cool. This is an opportunity for me to test and see how am I doing with my kindness. And he appreciated the time. And so I won that one. I won't, I don't win them all. I don't do well all the time, but that one I did, I did okay with. So love suffers long and is kind. And now he, turns to what love does not. It says love does not envy. What is it to envy? We don't, or love does not covet the blessings of others. We don't look at other people's things or other people's lives or other people's situations and look at those and say, that's what I want for me. That's envy. That's, I wish my life was like that. I wish I had that. It's, it's being jealous of what God has given another person. And I've said this before, and it's, it is strong, but I, I want to say it again. When we are envious, when we are coveting, when we are jealous of somebody else's situation, what we are saying to God is that, God, you're not doing a good enough job with my life. It's... He's in control. He's, he's sovereign over all things. And he is, he's directing our steps, each and every step along the path. And when we say, I want this, or I, I need this, or I, I wish I had, or I wish they were, or I wish, that's telling God, I don't like what you're doing. And we need to be careful of that. So it does not envy. It says love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. And so love is not self-seeking. It's not me-centered. It's not, I'm on display in hopes to receive a reward. That's not love. That's lust, isn't it? That's you giving to get something. 
That's you loving to, in order to receive something. To parade itself would be, you're, you're doing it for the glory that you would receive or you would hope to receive in doing the action that you're doing. That's, that's lust. Verse 3 of chapter 6 of the book of Matthew. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. You, you keep things quiet. You keep things on the down low so that your charitable giving, your kindness, your love is seen by your heavenly Father. He would say in, in, the, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says a couple different times, do your deeds so that when men see them, if men see them, they don't bring glory to you. They bring glory to their Father who is in heaven. Do your deeds in such a way that you would bring glory to God the Father, not yourself. It doesn't parade itself. It's not puffed up. Verse 5 would say, love does not behave rudely. Huh. We all do that now and again, don't we? I'm really tired, and it's been a long day, and you're on my nerves, and you are like a symbol. Love does not behave rudely because it's kind. Love is kind. Does not seek its own. Well, that's our definition, isn't it? Love is not seeking its own. Love is others-centered. Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in giving preference to one another. Philippians 2.4, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interest of others. Love is other-centered. It's not seeking its own. It's looking for an opportunity to care some, about somebody else more than you care about yourself. Love is not provoked. Now, some translations there slip in a, an extra word. You might have it in italics or in a bracket, depending on what translation you have. It would say, love is not provoked easily. That's a cop-out, <laughs> is why they put that in there. They looked at that and they say, surely at some point being provoked is okay. And, and so love is not provoked easily. That easily is not in the original manuscript. They added it because they thought never being provoked was too harsh. But that's what Paul said. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, love is not provoked. Ever? No, never. Never. Love thinks no evil. What's that mean? What he's saying is love does not store up or keep in memory how many times you've been wronged or we've been wronged. It's not a record count of the, I'm storing up how many times evil has been rendered against me. Peter would say to Jesus, thinking that he had it going on. Hey, Jesus, I know that I need to forgive my brother if he, if he sins against me up to seven times. What do you think of that? Not, how, how, how cool am I that I would forgive my brother seven times? Strutting, Peter is. <laughs> Jesus says, 
No, 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 Peter. 70 times, seven times is how many times. And that's just a way of saying without count. He's not saying, oh, it's 490 times? Perfect. Because I got a guy right now that's at 482, and now he's got about seven more times, and then I'm done. Because right now I'm provoked. (laughs) And I'm thinking evil. That's not what he's saying. Love thinks no evil. You don't store up memory of being wrong. Verse 6, love does not rejoice in iniquity. It doesn't celebrate when bad things happen to others. John Corson, as I was studying for tonight, uh, I always read Corson or listen to his message, and he was talking about that week, this was like 1991 that uh, he taught this, and uh, that there was a man in Florida who had won $10 million through the, lo- the lottery and had washed his ticket before turning it in in the laundry. So the way you just reacted will tell you if you are... Um, Rejoicing in iniquity. <laughs> you go, oh, that's horrible. <laughs> uh, you know, that's rejoicing in iniquity. So it's, we don't celebrate when bad things happen to others. Even if you're not really fond of that person, we don't celebrate those things when bad things happen. It doesn't rejoice in iniquity. He, he balances that, but rejoices in the truth. I like that. John 14, verse 6, we haven't got there yet on Sunday mornings, but we will. Jesus says, I am, another ego ami statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So when it says, when Paul says here, he rejoices in the truth, we can take that to mean he rejoices in Jesus. Our love rejoices in Jesus. All right, so now we're kind of back now to what love does. That was kind of a list of what love doesn't. Now back in verse 7, back to what love does. Love bears all things. Love carries the burden of others for the benefit of others. Love bears all things. We get our example, of course, from Jesus in that. For he bore our sin that we might have in life, have life. He bore our burden on the cross for our benefit that we might have eternal life. Love bears all things. I have to pause here just for a second and tell you just an idea that I've had and I've talked this through with my sister at length for, for years and years and years. She loves 1 Corinthians 13, it's probably her favorite chapter. And her favorite verse of this chapter is verse 7, specifically, love bears all things. And she she loves that little nugget. And she also happens to love teddy bears. She's, she's uh, what's the kind? Boy, yeah, she's a Boyd Bears collector. She she just happens to love teddy bears. And so when she saw that love bears all things, she hired a uh, a mural artist to paint a mural in her nursery with that, you know, theme and it love bears all things. And we got talking one day and thinking about it over lunch. And I said, wouldn't it be cool to have a company, you know, making teddy bears called love bears. And, and, and on the tag of the bear, you could put, you know, first Corinthians 13, seven love bears all things. And we, we, as we got talking about it, we were like, yeah, this is a really cool idea. And let's take it a step further. Let's demonstrate that love bears all things. Let's, the idea was that if I went to 
the store and bought a love bear, then as I bought that love bear, at the same time, its twin would go to a, a children's hospital of your choice in, you know, in the United States, something along those, those lines. So that every bear that was purchased, another bear went to a child that needed a, a, a loving, comforting stuffed animal, something along those lines. And so uh, if anybody, you know, we figured out it'd take about $150,000 to start that company. So if you're, you're interested in donating or, or participating in that, that, we still have that on the back burner. Love bears. It's a great idea, right? So bless some kids. Love bears all things. Carry the burden for the benefit of others. That's the idea. Love believes all things. Not that love believes a lie, but that it does not believe evil unless the facts demand it. Love doesn't necessarily believe a lie, but we think the best of others unless the facts would tell us something else. It's choosing to believe the best in others. Love hopes all things. We can, we sing that song in Christ alone. My hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. Love can hope all things because Christ has never failed. Love hopes all things, and we can't, love can hope all things because Christ has never failed. Love endures all things. So it's another way of saying it's long suffering, kind of tying those ideas together. Love bears all things. Love believes all things, love hopes all things, not just for a short time, but always endures all things. So love bears, love believes, love hopes, not just for a short time, but all the time, because it endures all things. Notice it doesn't say love bears some things, love believes some things, love hopes some things or endures some things. It's all things. And then the ultimate, love never fails. In other words, love is eternal, is what he's saying. It is forever. Love is eternal, this agape love. And remember now, he's... he's kind of put this definition, this new introduction of the word agape in the middle of these two chapters about the spiritual gifts, trying to remind his Corinthian church, hey, these gifts aren't for your benefit, they're for the benefit of others. And now he's going to speak of those gifts. He says, but whether they are pro- or whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge it will vanish away. And so he's saying those gifts that you're so hyped on, Corinthian church, there's a time coming when those gifts will cease. Love will not. Love is eternal. Love never fails. The gifts will cease. Love will not. It says in verse 9, For we know in part and we prophesy in part. In other words, we don't have the full picture, do we? We know in part, we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away with. 
So Paul is saying there's going to be a moment in time when we will do away with that which is done in part, which is what? The gifts. We know in part those, those gifts will be done away with. We believe that to that specific time when those things will be done away with is the return of Jesus Christ. That's when the gifts will cease. All, tw- all commentators prior to the 20th century believed that. If you read a commentary from the 1800s or, or, or back, they would say of this verse that the, the moment that Paul is speaking of when these things will cease is at the return of Jesus Christ. When the Pentecostal movement began around 1906, there were the fundamentalists who took issue with those in the Pentecostal movement, the Pentecostal movement being an emphasis on the spiritual gifts, and then the fundamentalists took issue with that. They needed to come up with a way to explain that the gifts had ceased. And so they made the perfect of this verse the Word of God. And they would say, so when we received then the full canon, the Word of God, that is when the the gifts ceased. It's at the end of the apostles' lives, that is when the gifts ceased. We don't believe that at Calvary Chapel. We would believe what most have believed over the, the years is that the, what he speaks of, when that which is perfect has come, he's speaking of the return of Jesus Christ. Then that which is in part will be done away with. He says in verse 11, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. The idea there, we grow in Christ, we grow, we mature, and as we mature, with maturity comes a leaving behind of certain things. We don't talk like children anymore. We don't act like children anymore because we're adults now. Same is true as we grow in Christ. We don't think as a child when we become men and women. We put away childish things. In the case of gifts, we're going to leave those behind when we reach full maturity, when we are glorified. When our, when our sanctified, our sanctification is over, at that moment when we see him face to face and we become glorified at that point, then we will have no need for the spiritual gifts. It makes sense, doesn't it? If we're, he's going to speak now of seeing him face to face. Let's read that first. It says in verse 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. For now, now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am, just as I also am known. So when you and I see Jesus face to face, we we won't have need for the gifts anymore. We won't have need for healing. We'll be healed. We won't have need for a word of wisdom. He is wisdom. We won't have need of knowledge. He will give us the knowledge we need in that moment. We, we won't have need for the spiritual gifts. We won't have need of tongues. We'll be seeing him face to face. And so when we are matured, when we are glorified, we will leave those things behind. We see in a mirror dimly, 
They didn't have mirrors the way you and I have mirrors today. When we go into the restroom or whatever and look in the mirror, we get a pretty accurate representation of what we look like, whether you like it or not. And so... They, but back then, they didn't have the idea that you, you put something dark behind the glass in order to get an accurate reflection. They would polish metal, highly polished metal would be their mirrors. And you can't get metal perfectly straight, and so there would be distortions. And that's what he's saying. You see now in a mirror dimly. It's, it's not a, a fully accurate representation of what you look like. But then we'll see face to face. We'll put those gifts behind. And then finishing out the chapter, verse 13. Now, uh, and now abide faith, hope, and love. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Why is the greatest love? Because faith and hope are found in love. Therefore, the greatest is love. We find our faith, we find our hope in the love, that agape love. Of Jesus. And so Paul is saying, like he said at the end of chapter 12, let me show you a more excellent way. What is that more excellent way? That is agape love. It's other centered love. It's sacrificial love. It's love that's kind. It's love that's uh, just going through the list again. If you've studied this before, you've probably heard this, but it's a, it's a good practice on your part and on my part as you read through this very short chapter. Each time you see the word love, go back through it and replace the word love with Jesus. Because it's absolutely true. Jesus is long-suffering. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus rejoices in truth. Jesus does not rejoice in iniquity. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Jesus never fails. It's Jesus' love. The other thing you can do too, just to kind of see where you're at, is put your name in there. Chris is kind. Depends on the day. Chris is not provoked. No, Chris usually is provoked. (laughs) Chris endures all things. Chris endures very little. (laughs) Chris fails on a regular basis. But that doesn't mean Chris or you stops trying because his grace is ever sufficient and our goal in life is to look more like him. And so we pursue, we press, we continue to try and we pray, God, I want to be kind. I want to endure all things. I want to bear others' burdens. I I don't want to seek my own. I don't want to parade myself. God, I want to live for your kingdom. God, I want to be abandoned to your ways. I want to be surrendered to your will in my life. So help me again. Help me again. Jesus, you are the epitome of each and every one of these characteristics of the word love. Let me be more like that. Let us be more like that.